You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I need you to take a minute and do something risky. I need you to remember the last time, maybe it doesn't even have to be the last time, but a recent time that someone sinned against you. Now, here's why it's risky. Because when you go and you start remembering when somebody sinned against you, you create the potential for you to sin in response. So you got to be careful. It's kind of risky. You don't want to start harboring unforgiveness. You don't want that anger that you thought you had dealt with to bubble back up. But we're going to do this little kind of test case, and you can take a minute and think through carefully, like, when was the last time someone sinned against me? And then, when you've kind of got that in there, think through, you know, like, how did I respond to that? What was my posture? What was my, like the, the moment it happened, whether somebody said something or I heard about something that somebody did that hurt my feelings, whatever it is, how did I respond to it? What was my gut reaction? What was my inclination? What was that? And not like my, after a few days I was cooled off response, but my in the moment, how did I respond when they hurt me, when they sinned against me? It's a common human experience, isn't it, being sinned against? Like, it's happened to all of us. All of us have been hurt in some way. All of us have been, someone has transgressed in some way against us. Paul had the experience. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes. Like, how was Paul sinned against, and how does he respond to that? And you know the kinds of tendencies we have, don't you? Like when somebody hurts you, when somebody does something, we have those, like a lot of times, we very quickly, we want revenge, don't we? And sometimes it's an out loud kind of revenge, and it's very abrasive, it's very overt. It's like, you're going to treat me that way, here's how I'm going to treat you in response. Or maybe if we want to kind of maintain the air of holiness, we'll kind of like let it roll off our shoulders, but deep inside, our hearts are really seething, right? Maybe like... Maybe that's because you can be a nice gentleman or lady and have a whole lot of anger and unforgiveness in your heart, can't you? <laughs> you know, you can be a proper civil person and kind of hold that in. So we're thinking about our response to being sinned against in terms of outward behavior and internal attitudes and emotions and postures and things like that, right? And so all that's going on. And you may begin to wonder, like, what's Paul? We hear a lot about what he says, and, and maybe we're wondering, what's he doing as he's being sinned against? False accusations flying around all over the place, getting left in jail for two years of captivity without anybody having any real serious accusation against him. Like, how does he feel, and, and, and what's his posture. And I think the thing that we'll see as we kind of come through this again and again, as we look at Paul and as we kind of reflect on this, reflect on our own experience through the lens of this text, the thing that I really want us to settle in here and hold on to this, and this like when you leave, hold on to this thing. 
And I'm telling you this, if you'll hold on to this thing, your life will improve. I don't usually always say that in sermons, but like if you hold on to this and kind of let this become a pattern for your life, your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with people in your house and at your work are going to get better. And here it is. Other people's sin doesn't justify my transgression. We don't live like that sometimes because we think, you did it to me, I'm going to do it to you. But when we come to the Scriptures, when we come to the cross, when we come to these narratives where Paul is just for years and years being sinned against, other people's sin does not justify my sinful response. Other people's sin doesn't justify my transgression. So let's take a look at Paul. Here he is. And he's got these two hearings. The first one happens in Jerusalem. The second one happens in Caesarea. The first one happens with the Jerusalem, uh, the Sanhedrin, kind of the Jewish ruling elders. The second one happens with a Roman governor, this guy named Felix. Now, Paul has been detained. And he's been detained for his protection to some degree and to just keep the city from going crazy. So they take him into custody, uh, and the tribune, this guy Lysias, has got to figure out, like, what in the world is going on? The city's in an uproar. It's his job to keep the status quo. It's his job to keep the peace. And, like, threats of ambush are really not, like, if a Roman tribune gets ambushed by the people he's supposed to be keeping under control, it's not really good for his resume, you know, things like that. So he's got to, he's got a very fiery situation happening here. Maybe you can appreciate the anxiety that Lysias has got to do with. He's got these like crazy ambush guys who are just trying to kill Paul and he needs to keep the peace. And so he starts out, let's just get the Jewish elders together and let's bring Paul in and let's figure out what's going on. So Paul comes to meet the council and the first thing he said, like he's just like, I'm just trying to keep a clear conscience, right? People are sinning against him. What's he trying to do? He's trying to keep a clear conscience. He's trying to not justify his own sin in the face of being sinned against, isn't he? And what happens as soon as he says, I'm trying to keep a clear conscience? The power player in the room, the high priest, instructs somebody to hit him in the face. Now, if you were in a situation like that, and one of the power players in the room was like, hey, hit him in the face. What would you do? I'm guessing some of us would be in that moment where holiness isn't really the primary like, the target. You know, it's like, I'm feeling good about being holy when I'm in my band meeting, feeling good about trying to be the holy life when I'm, you know, in church on Sunday morning. But when I'm getting false accusations and some guy is like trying to hit me in the face, I'm not really feeling very holy right now, am I? Amen? I figured it. Making sure we're on the same page here, right? So this is Paul. And he's like, what in the world? You just hit me in the face. That's the living translation I'll give you right here. The NRSV puts it this way. This Paul said to him, God will strike you. So you can kind of, you probably, you can kind of feel the tension in Paul a little bit, right? It's like, you're going to strike me. God will strike you. I haven't done anything wrong. This is unjust. And so then again, right? It's not wrong. It's not a sin to name the injustice, is it? Like he's being sinned against, and he names the problem. God will strike you. You whitewashed wall. It's not like a compliment. 
Are you sitting there to judge me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law you order me to be struck? So he's insisting on kind of fairness and equity. He expects the teachers of the law to submit themselves to the law. Notice as well, though, however, when they tell him this is the high priest, notice his sense of concession as well, though. Like you can almost feel like Paul is kind of getting his... A little bit of temper happening here, and then he kind of like, all right, let me just, let's de-escalate, you know, because you know, you've been in situations where you have a choice, you can escalate or de-escalate, some of us like to escalate, don't we? Just go ahead and have a little confession time. It's usually not a very helpful thing to do, is it? So Paul starts de-escalating, and then, <clears throat> it's, 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 it's almost kind of humorous, he just throws the whole thing into an uproar, he sees that you got some factions in the group in the group and he knows like it's a kangaroo court right like they're not there nobody's really interested in the truth except the roman tribune and he's more interested in like not having a riot than he is the truth and so paul says like you got you got some sadducees in the room and they're anti-supernaturalists they don't believe in miracles and they believe in resurrections and they don't believe in angels they're like physicalist if you can't see it and touch it it's not real and then you got the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are all about the resurrection. <clears throat> Angels and spirits, miracles, they're more supernaturalists. And so Paul just sort of picks into that identity distinction. I'm a Pharisee, believe in the resurrection. That's what the issue is here. And so one of the best ways for Paul here to like get the pressure off him is to turn it on each other, isn't it? So that's what he does. And the tribune is just in a mess because this has not worked according to plan, has it? So here's Paul. <clears throat> being sinned against, treated unfairly. And it's just a mess. It really is. It's just a mess. It's not going well, <clears throat> at least from an outside perspective. And then he gets back to the barracks, because remember, he's being held in the barracks, <laughs> partly to keep the peace, partly for his own protection. He is a Roman citizen, and you can't go around having people just kill Roman citizens all over the place. So that night, the Lord stands near him, right? Jesus shows up. It's always important to pay attention when Jesus shows up. We're used to Jesus showing up in the Gospels, but we forget sometimes Jesus shows up in Acts. We haven't heard from Jesus lately. Like We get the moving of the Spirit. But here's Jesus. Paul's in prison, and Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus say to him? How does Jesus respond to Paul's the injustice that Paul has faced? And here's what the Lord says. This is 2311. <clears throat> that night the Lord stood near him and said, keep your courage. How does Jesus respond when you get sinned against, when Paul gets sinned against? Keep your courage. That's not where we nip it, typically land, is it? Like, maybe we are feeling some courage, but it's not that kind of, it's not, <laughs> it's not Jesus kind of courage, is it? Probably brash is more the word. Jesus says to Paul, keep your courage, for just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, that happened today, so you must bear witness also in Rome. I got plans for you, Paul. I got plans for you. I got plans for your witness. And it's a helpful reminder because you know, we've kind of gone through a lot of acts, and Jesus hasn't been forefront speaking, and it may be easy to forget that he's even a character in the story, the narrative of Acts. But if you remember all the way back to the very beginning, where, where did Jesus go at the beginning of Acts? 
He ascended, didn't he? And when he ascended, he ascended into what place? Heaven, right? And if you remember, way back, we discovered, as we were reading through the beginning of Acts, that heaven isn't like off in the wild blue yonder somewhere, like, like out there, far away and irrelevant, and we wish he'd come back and get involved because it would be a lot better if he would... If Jesus were involved, heaven isn't a distant place. Heaven is mission control. That was kind of our running image in the early chapters of Acts, that heaven is the place where Jesus is governing creation. It's not distant, it's engaged. right? Like if you're on a space shuttle, you really want the guy who's running mission control to be there, right? If you're on the mission of the church, you really want Jesus to be in heaven because that's mission control. It's the place where he is engaged and he is ministering and he's sending his spirit and he is at work and he's giving his church instructions and he's in control. And here's the thing. Even when Paul gets sinned against, Jesus is not distant. When Paul gets sinned against, Jesus isn't like away in heaven. When Paul gets sinned against, Jesus is saying, remember, mission control and I got plans for you, baby. That's not a quote of Jesus. It's a paraphrase. But you get the idea. Like, this is your calling, Paul. This is your vocation. You have testified more me to, for me across the world. You've testified in Jerusalem, and now you're going to testify in Rome. And it's going to get a little hairy, and it's going to get a little crazy, and it may look like I've lost it. It may look like I've lost control. But in this moment, in this night, in these barracks, don't you forget, no matter how badly they treat you, don't you forget how much painful it gets, don't you forget how bad it gets, I reign in heaven over earth. And Jesus says to Paul, keep your courage. When someone sins against you, <laughs> and courage isn't what you're feeling, that you know that it's it's like you can feel anger just kind of rise starts right about here and it kind of gets to here and you're thinking I can still handle this and maybe we can like get it under control but when it gets about here it's almost over isn't it and then it's out and it's and and you can't fix it what would it look like for Christians to shift so when people sin against us and we're hurt, we shift from fury to Christ-oriented courage. We'll talk more about what that looks like in a couple minutes. I just want to raise the question right now. What would that look like in my life? If when I'm sinned against, I began to shift from Retribution to Christ-oriented courage. What does courage look like when someone is sinning against me? Courage. That's what Jesus tells him. He doesn't say like, you know, it probably would be good for Paul to pray for his enemies in this moment. And Jesus says things like that in the Gospels. But here he says, courage. And I don't think that's a word that shows up in most of our minds when someone sins against us. But it's the word that Jesus gives Paul when someone sins against him. So here's the next way Paul is sinned against. <laughs> Assassination. 
right? So a group of 40 men come together and say, we're not going to eat again until he's dead. Don't let people tell you the Bible isn't interesting, like ambushes and soldiers and all this stuff, right? And so there's a conspiracy. And you talk about being sinned against. When was the last time someone got 40 people together to try to kill you? Like, come see me with your problems then, right? I mean, this is major stuff. And the ambushers, the conspirators, go to the, go to the council. They go to the, to the high priest, or to the tribune, and, or excuse me, to the, to the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, the elders, say, we bound ourselves to an oath. We're not going to eat until we kill Paul. And we want you guys to get involved in the conspiracy. Like, this is like dozens and dozens and dozens of people involved in a conspiracy to kill a man unjustly. When was the last time you got sinned against like that? All right, so let's keep things in perspective here. But again, Jesus is at work, right? Jesus isn't detached. Jesus is the Lord who reigns in heaven, who's governing things. And you see him providentially at work to preserve Paul's life. And so... His nephew, the son of Paul's sister, is like, tell us the kid's name. Like, it would have been nice to know who he was, right? But we don't get his name. We just find out that it's Paul's nephew. Overhears the conspiracy. And this guy's like, I got to let somebody know. And so he goes to Lysias and to the centurions and tells them what's going on. And again, if you're a Roman peacekeeper, you really don't want the people you're supposed to be keeping oppressed to, like, ambush your soldiers, right? So he, here's how he responds. They're going to ambush me. We're leaving tonight before they're ready. Nine o'clock, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Real quick, that's like 470 people, right? 40 guys are going to ambush this soldier. He says, we'll do you 470. I started to try to subtract that in my head, but I figured we should just go with the numbers in the book. Ten times as many people, more than ten times as many people. And we're going to Caesarea, we're going tonight. We're not going to give these guys a chance. That's not because the, or the tribune is particularly effective. It's because Jesus has plans for Paul to bear witness in Rome. And everything, the preservation of Paul, in the midst of being sinned against, like an ambush assassination on his life. Jesus is at work preserving him. So he gets to Caesarea, and he gets to the governor. And when he gets there, he gets sinned against some more. Sanhedrin has lawyered up. They're not handling this themselves. They, they've hired counsel. So Tertullus shows up, and he's clearly a skilled orator. And he goes in and just throws all the sugar coating he can on this bad boy. And then he starts launching more false accusations, right? So again, this is Paul. This is Paul getting sinned against. We know what that feels like. We've been sinned against. And Paul gets sinned against. A couple different things. He is said in verse 5 to be an agitator among all the Jews. What's striking is the hypocrisy because it's not Paul agitating. It's the Jewish council that's agitating, isn't it? Like They're the ones that are fomenting unrest. And so not only are they launching false accusations, they're doing that with a deep spirit of hypocrisy. So again, what do you do when someone sins against you? What do you do when someone treats you hypocritically? 
That's the question. Like, that's the question that comes up again and again. What does it look like for a Christian to act in that situation? So he's accused of being an agitator, and he's accused of profaning the temple. So we seized him. And I love this. I love Paul's response. He looks at the governor, and he says in verse 10, verse 10 I cheerfully make my defense. I think Paul's done a little growing in the last chapter. Because he's gone from, you whitewashed wall, to, I cheerfully make my defense. What's the difference? Well, I think the difference is probably the fact that Jesus showed up last night. Or five nights ago, because remember, we had some time with Travis. Jesus showed up and said, hey, Paul, I got you. Take courage. And now we've moved away from insults to, I'm just going to put a smile on my face and talk about Jesus, friend. I'm just going to put a smile on my face and talk about Jesus. Because when you guys are locking me up, he's showing up. And when you're treating me hypocritically, he's called me to declare the majesty of his glory to the nations. Talk about keeping the main thing the main thing. Like he could get all inner oriented focus. He could be all, this isn't fair. They're the ones doing it, not me. They're the, it's his fault. It's not like, because that's what we do, right? When someone sins against us, we want to blame somebody, don't we? Look at what they did. Look at how they're treating me. Like, like that's our tendency. But Paul here, he doesn't do that. He doesn't start blaming people here. I mean, he's going to say, like, here's what really happened. But you don't get the sense that there's this selfish, I'm going to get you. He just starts talking about the stuff we just confessed in the creed. Talking about the resurrection. Talking about Jesus. Again and again and again, we are to remember that it is the exalted Christ who is driving this ship. His purposes for Paul are being worked out. And Paul is having an audience with increasingly powerful people to declare the glory of God in Christ and the resurrection. And it's crucial. He's only in a position to do that if he remembers and practices other people's sin doesn't justify my transgressions. He could be like, you sinned against me, I'm about to let you have it. But instead, he says, you sinned against me, and I'm just going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. Because that's what he's called me to do. What would it look like for the church to make that shift? For local churches all over the country to make that shift. For Christians to make that shift. In this day of deep polarization, where everybody's pointing fingers at everybody. It's your fault, it's their fault, it's you know all the stuff. What would it look like for the church to say, you know what, it's a lot of people's fault. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. What would it look like to be singularly focused in that place? It starts in one-on-one moments when someone sins against us. And we live into their sin doesn't justify my sin in response. What's Jesus calling me to do? He's calling me to be courageous. He's calling me to be cheerful. 
He's calling me to be standing on my convictions and declare the faith that has been given to me since childhood. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Would that change the tone of the conversation? Would it change the tone of the debate? If the church just said, you know what, go ahead and call us names. It's fine. Go ahead and make false accusations. Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. And we're not going to shut up about that. We're just going to keep saying it. With smiles on our faces and songs in our hearts. Smiles on our faces and songs in our hearts. Why, why is Paul able to embody this sort of character? And how will we be able to embody this sort of character? And notice the sinning against Paul doesn't stop. Like, they keep him in captive for two more years, hoping to get a little money. Like, it's extortion. The governor's like, eh, I'll listen to him from time to time. Maybe he'll pitch me some cash, and otherwise just keep him locked up, and they'll be happy, and then he'll be in prison, and I'll be happy. And Sin against him again and again and again and again. So how, do we, how does he, how, we've talked about the shift. How do you make the shift? And as I'm reflecting on this, I can't help but think about Romans 5, verse 6 through 11. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by His blood, we will be saved through Him from the wrath of God. And it's important to remember that Jesus is God. And so the wrath of God is the wrath of Jesus. Like that calculated, just, good, and right opposition to, to, to sin. That's the wrath of God. It's not God being reckless and flying off the handle like some kind of crazy lunatic who's lost his mind. Like the righteous response to sin is condemnation. And Jesus, who hates our sin, who is offended by it, loves us so much that He's willing to embrace the full consequences for my transgression. Thanks be to God, Jesus didn't think that my sin justified His opposition. I mean, my sin does justify His opposition to me. And instead, He shows mercy. So there's a crucial place, friends, like when someone sins against us, one of the key first steps to being able to be cheerfully, courageously focused on Jesus instead of infuriatingly frustrated on my revenge, one of the crucial things is to be able to remember, like Jesus owes me condemnation, but he offers me mercy. And he says, follow me. Jesus owes me condemnation. Like this isn't mean old God the Father with all the wrath and sweet little Jesus showing up to, oh, I'll die in your place. Like, like this is Jesus owes me condemnation. The one who reigns in heaven, the judge of the living and the dead. Scripture says it is Jesus who is appointed to judge all men and all women. 
It's Jesus. He owes me wrath. And He offers me mercy. And if He can do that, and then say, follow me, maybe, just maybe, He can bring me to a place where when someone sins against me, it's not revenge that's in my heart. It's mercy. Because that's what it means to grow in Christ-likeness. That's who He is. That's who He is to us. That's who He is to you. He owes you wrath. He offers you mercy. And when that truth makes its way past our heads and into our hearts, we're beginning to get to a place where he can reproduce his character in us. And that's when the world changes. The world doesn't change till we change. We can talk about follow Jesus, change the world all day long, but if you don't actually follow Jesus and do what he says when somebody's sinning against you, you'll never change the world. Because the world won't change until we change. I'm going to say that like ten more times. <laughs> the world won't change until we change. And that's why the Holy Spirit came at the beginning of Acts. To reproduce the character of God. The character of Jesus. In all of us. That's the gospel, friends. And we've spent decades in North American Christianity telling people, all you got to do is come down front, sign on the dotted line, pray the prayer, and go to Sunday school every now and then, and you're saved forever. And we haven't said Jesus actually expects you to embody his character. Like, that's what it means to follow him. He actually expects people like Paul, who used to kill people who follow Jesus, To give up revenge and become cheerfully courageous proclaimers of the gospel when people are sinning against them in massive ways. The American church is a mess, friends. And it's a mess because we've sold a very small gospel. A very, very small gospel. And if you want the church in this land to be a thriving, rich, holy, transformative, mission-oriented, Jesus-loving, world-changing movement, well, the next time somebody sins against you, you get a choice. whose character is going to show up in that moment. And we'll find out real quick which way we're going, won't we? Now remember from the start, we said there's two, two aspects of this that we've got to tend to. Remember what they were? 
There's that inside thing, the thing that I feel rising up inside me when somebody sins against me, and then there's the outside thing, the stuff I actually say, or the fists I throw around, or whatever it may be, right? Like, depending on how crazy things get. There's the inner attitude and the outward action, and in both instances, the call of Scripture, the call of Jesus is to surrender to Him. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, the Apostle Paul talks about taking every thought captive. Can I take my thoughts captive to Jesus? How does he put it? He says we take, every, we take captive every thought to obey Christ Jesus. And that's a great principle, isn't it? We're like, yeah, my thoughts are going to honor Jesus. Well, will my thoughts honor Jesus when someone is sinning against me? Like, am I going to take every, every thought captive? Or am I going to take those thoughts, those attitudes and those postures and that frustration am I going to let my anger be captive to Jesus when somebody is sinning against me and my face is turning redder than it normally is because the world won't change till that changes the world won't change till that changes so there's that inner thought there's that thought life and all the stuff that goes with it then there's the actions, the things we say. A couple days later when we've cooled off a little bit, but we still feel it. And we're like, hey, let me tell you what so-and-so. Because you can gossip real good and get somebody back, and they don't even know it, right? But all that stuff's got to be captive to Jesus if you want to change the world. If you're not worried about changing the world, just don't worry about it. Go on home. This is what it means to grow in holiness. Like holiness ain't a list of rules to keep. It's easy to manage. Like holiness is easy if it has to do with like what kind of clothes you wear and whether or not you play cards and what you drink and things like that. You can manage that real easily, can't you? But if holiness is in the moment someone sins against me, the Spirit of God is able to work cheerful courage instead of infuriated revenge. Like, that's, that's when you know Jesus is working in your life. It's more about my character than any, any of the stuff I can put on the list. So here's the invitation. It's going to happen. I guarantee it. Probably today, if not today, tomorrow for sure. Tomorrow's Monday, and people are always getting sent against on Monday. <clears throat> School's starting back. You're going to be running late. Somebody's going to be running late on tomorrow morning, won't they? I'm tempted to say, raise your hand if you plan to run late tomorrow, but no, I won't. It's going to happen. If not today, tomorrow, someone will sin against you. Everybody knows that, right? I see some heads nodding. A couple of folks are still paying attention. Someone will sin against you. It may be someone you love. Could be your kids. Could be your spouse. Could be one of your students. Could be someone on your football team. Whatever it is. Whoever. The question is, who will have your heart in that moment? Who will have your heart in that moment? 
Will you be justifying all of the things that you want to do to get them back? Or will you hear Jesus say, take courage. This is how we change the world. One Christian at a time. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.